BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear work. Bendrovsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Bendrovsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, August 13th, 2020. Uh, the headlines in the New York Times says it all. We're getting ready for a monumental <laughs> showdown, ladies and gentlemen. Biden-Harris vow to revive U.S. as Trump attacks. Yes, uh, this is old news. Joe Biden selected Kamala Harris as his running mate. They had a joint appearance yesterday, and Donnie Trump responded by co- trying to come up with a nickname uh, to belittle Kamala Harris. This is what it's come down to. This is the Republican Party bankrupt of anything resembling an idea that anybody want uh, to vote for them for is resorting to name calling and race baiting. That's your Republican Party, folks. Uh, don't blame me. I've never voted Republican since I haven't voted Republican since 1978. Uh, as I do with all bonus show interviews, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. One guest is uh, in a nice room where it's easy to talk to him and the other one i think is walking through an <laughs> apple orchard somewhere in michigan uh talking on a shoe phone so i don't know how good it's gonna sound so um let's 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 get the the responsible guest the one who followed the rules guest uh to introduce himself first so uh guest whose nickname uh excuse me his initials are jk introduce yourself uh, how's it going, Ben? Jacob Kaplan here, uh, executive director of the Cook County Democratic Party. And guest who's in an apple orchard somewhere, uh, introduce yourself. Uh, Daniel Pugelski, hailing uh, from Michigan as we speak, the swing state that we're trying to bring for none other than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, sir. <laughs> All right, very good. I, I can't say for sure that young Daniel uh, is in uh, Apple Orchard. Just looked like it for a while. Uh, Dan Pogoshevsky <laughs> is the vice president of the 38th Ward Democrats. He's also an aide to Michael Frerichs, the treasurer of the state of Illinois. What he says is his opinions, and they're only his opinions, do not reflect the opinions of uh, Michael Frerichs. So don't give Michael Frerichs a hard time if Danny says something you disagree with, all right? Literal. We have First Amendment rights. We have free expression rights in the United States. Donald Trump said it, okay? He said it himself. So leave Danny alone. All right. Um, we're on the eve of a convention, and uh, Jacob and I were talking at length. We're uh, Well, these are the political know-it-alls. They haven't been on the show in six weeks. I should do a better job of reaching out to them. They know everything about politics. They're two political geeks. I'm a third political geek. Proud to say it. Uh, so we're on the eve of a convention. I just thought, you know, Jacob would be a lot of fun to talk about great conventions past. I am a, a student 
of, of conventions. I love them dearly. Uh, and uh, this one here could be a little disappointing because it's a virtual convention. You won't have the crowds and the balloons and all, and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, at least we have some speeches. Uh, before I take the, uh, the deep dive with you two on your favorite conventions and some of the great uh, his, the conventions of the past and how they relate to today. Jacob, I've got to ask you, uh, with Kamala Harris on the ticket with Joe Biden, are you confident at this moment about the, the Democrats' uh, opportunity to defeat Donald John Trump? I am confident. However, I don't think we should get complacent. I think we need to work our butts off. I don't doubt that we will. Um, but I want to win by a huge margin because based on how Trump's playing around with the post office and the fact that no matter what happens, he's going to claim it was a rigged election. We should win by, you know, as much of a margin as possible and we should play everywhere and we need to work our butts off for the next three months. So confident, but still there's a ton of work ahead is what I would say. You know what, Jacob, I had this thought I was I said it today and I'll share with you. I believe that the Democrats, to pick up on your point about being vigilant, the Democrats should treat this national election the way Democrats in Chicago treat aldermanic elections. Don't play around. Each side has its people in the room where the votes are counted. Don't trust it to the other side. You did that in Florida in 2000. You wimped out. You let Bush steal that election and got certified by the Supreme Court. Jacob Kaplan, for once, Democrats on a national scale have to play tough politics with Republicans. They can't do that traditional wimpy, oh, we like Republicans, we get along with them stuff. It always ends in defeat for the Democrats. Do you agree with me? I agree. I agree totally. And I also think, you know, one of the things like we need to spend money in places like Texas, even if we can't, you know, even if Biden doesn't necessarily win Texas, uh, you know, we, we may be able to win the state legislature there. And that's so important. So we have to work to elect Democrats up and down the ticket everywhere and play the entire field this November, because there's nothing less than democracy on the line, honestly. Dad, do you share our, uh, our point of view on this thing? Definitely. Not only that, I would also like to point out that when you're talking about this upcoming election, the last time around in 2010, not the presidential election, but the election immediately after that in 2010, 10 years ago, Republicans utilized the fact that they swept into office in so many state legislatures to redraw the maps in ways that totally drew put the Democrats out into the political wilderness for a decade. And so to highlight what Jacob talked about, this election, once again, will also decide who's in control in the state legislatures, which will draw the maps, which will decide that we have an inequitable system where credit votes are cast and yet we send less people to Congress. That's wrong and it's unsustainable. And that's another reason why we need good turnout, like Jacob said, in those state legislatures like Texas and everywhere else for Democrats. I'm with, I'm with you 100 percent in that. And I'm just going to get on my soapbox right now. One more time. <laughs> No fair maps in the state of Illinois until I see Republicans in Michigan do a fair map, until I see Republicans in Wisconsin do a fair map. This game, this kid's going to get at Jacob Cap. This really irritates me about Dems. And there's so many Dems that I know. They're like, Ben, you're so mean. You're Republicans. I have a friend that was Republican. You got to be nice. I've never seen it work where Democrats are nice. 
and Republicans reciprocate. I've never seen it, definitely in the last uh, 20 to 30 years, Jacob. I've not seen it. I, I don't know what world the fair map people live in, but it resembles nothing like a real political world. Do you agree with me? I agree. I think this is, again, if this was years and years ago when the Republican Party was not uh, kind of the death cult that it is now, as I would call it, it's a different story. But I think we're just playing. We have to, uh, you know, play them at their own game and and take everything seriously and uh, do everything we can to win. And uh, that means, like you said, we shouldn't do fair maps in Illinois if we're not doing fair maps everywhere. I mean, it's just not fair in that case. So. And it's just dumb. It's yeah. dumb maps. Yeah. Uh, Democrats being dumb. All right. Uh, let's talk about some conventions. Let's uh, explore our inner geekdom uh, as we head off into this convention. Uh, I have uh, my favorite conventions, not just one. I mean, I didn't attend them, but I watched them or read about them, obs- obsessed about them. I'll start with uh, you, Jacob, because uh, you had a little more time to think about it than Dan. Dan, you think about yours. All-time favorite convention, not necessarily one you attended, but just for the dramatics uh, or uh, you know the colorful personalities. If you had an all-time favorite, which one would it be? I mean, it's it's a tough call, but I think, and it's not one that was good for the Democrats, but 1980, you know, Democratic Convention in New York, I'd have to mention as uh, one of the most noteworthy ones. It was just an absolute disaster for uh, for the Dems. I mean, that's the one where, you know, Carter couldn't pronounce uh, <laughs> uh, Hubert Humphrey's name properly. The When he gave his, you know, of course, this is when Ted Kennedy was challenging uh, Carter for the nomination. Never a good thing when you're the... Uh, you know, the incumbent president being challenged by your own party usually doesn't end up well. So that was another thing. And then, of course, uh, the last day, the uh, balloon drops right after uh, Carter's uh, speech and the balloons don't actually drop. So it was really a uh, I think a telling uh, sign for how the Democrats were going to do in 1980. Why? So having said all that, why do you like it or what made, made I mean, you like it? It's just the history geek in me. I like, you know, most conventions, let's admit, are boring, and we don't really remember, remember many things about most uh, conventions, whether they're Democratic or Republican. So I'm just thinking of the ones that uh, were actually had some noteworthy things where, uh, you know, they were a negative for one or the other of the parties, and that's one that just comes to mind. Well, I have a couple of memories of 1980. Uh, I, I, that is... I was at that convention. That's how old I am. I was, I'm ancient. I was at the 1980 convention. A friend of mine got a pass and uh, I had a floor pass. I actually had a floor pass to a, a, a friend of mine. Uh, we were, I was just wandering around the convention floor uh, through that uh, in 1980. I remember sitting in the uh, Illinois uh, delegation and there was a gentleman next to me, a very young man. I shook his hand. What's your name? And he got John Cullerton. Oh, nice to meet you. Uh, uh, he was, I don't even know if he was a state rep then. Uh, but uh, 1980 to me symbolized the great divide in the Democratic Party, uh, one that somehow exists to this day. Uh, in some form or another, and, and Ted Kennedy represented what we would today call a progressive wing, uh, and Jimmy Carter represented the centrists in the Democratic Party, and as such, Jimmy Carter was trying uh, to deal with the economy uh, by uh, going into uh, anti-inflation mode, and uh, try, interest rates were rising, and people were losing their jobs, uh, and uh, Ted Kennedy denounced the policies, the economic policies of Jimmy Carter and extolled the virtues of FDR. And he was trying to call the party back, if you will. 
And uh, it was a very compelling speech that Ted Kennedy gave, Jacob. But you're right, it symbolized the divide in the Democratic Party at the absolute worst time going into battle against the master, the maestro, Ronald Reagan. Yep. It was not it was not not a great not a good convention for Democrats at all. So, uh, you know, I hopefully we'll do a lot better uh, this time around. At least we you know, I think we will. <laughs> Dan, do you have any memories in 1980? Uh, I uh, I don't have any memories of 1980. Um, but, you know, obviously, I think that all these conventions are interesting because it's a milestone by which you have the opportunity to kind of see where the country is when you really look back on them. I think that they're a big testament to really understand, you know, the past, which is a foreign country in general. Uh, and uh, so do, do you have a, a favorite convention, uh, Dan? Well, so I have, a, I have a favorite convention right now. So, you know, think of it as like your favorite Beatles tune. There's all different kinds of awesome things which catch your eye. But lately, I've been obsessed with the 1944 convention, which was in Chicago. Now, think about this. It's the fifth time that FDR is nominated for president. It's also the last time that he'll be nominated for president. So you have where, um, remember, at that time, FDR wasn't challenged at that convention. Um, And obviously you have, thankfully, the the people feeling that the end of the war is coming near. But one of uh, of the political political heroes of, of Jacob that I definitely also have a lot of respect for is Harry Truman. And if you'll remember, that was a contentious convention in the sense where that is where Harry Truman ended up being selected as vice president. Also, it gives me the opportunity to talk about, as a Chicago nationalist, the fact that Chicago has had more presidential conventions in both parties than any other city in the United States. Uh, well, we'll probably get to uh, the 1968 convention, which uh, almost ended <laughs> conventions in Chicago. Uh, 1944, I, got, I have a confession to make. I was not at that convention, wasn't born yet uh, in 1944. But uh, I look at it differently. And uh, again, we're talking about a split of sorts in the Democratic Party along ideological lines. In 1944, uh, Henry Wallace had been the, um, the vice president. He was ushered out for Harry Truman, and he is he went on to become a third party candidate running as a progressive, as a lefty. Uh, and a lot of uh, left wing Democrats felt that the party had abandoned them and they went with Henry Wallace. So it's interesting to think that, you know, um, Harry Truman has such a high stature, I guess, for well. Jacob, you just mentioned he's one of Jacob's favorite presidents. But for lefties, back in 1944, it was considered an abandonment of where the Democrats uh, are, uh, were going. Uh, Jacob, why do you have such a high opinion of Harry Truman? Uh, I just think he was, I, I, I love this, his story. He started in local politics, you know, was essentially, and uh, ends up being chosen for the ticket in 1944. Uh, basically because he was the only person that the Democrats could find that, that didn't uh, give the uh, factions to a large liberal on some positions, but not too liberal. So he kind of comes in just because he's a compromised person and, you know, ends up being thrust into the presidency. Although no, you know, FDR kind of kept him out of doing, uh, I think, an admirable job, admirable job 
fin- you know, finishing the war, winning the war, and just being president during a very tumultuous time. And you can just think of, you know, other, you know, here's a guy that, again, never had a college degree, came out of a, you know, small town near Kansas City, Missouri, local politics, and ends up being, you know, a very admirable president, I would say. And uh, even though he left office in 1953 with a very low approval rating, I think his, uh, I think his legacy has really improved over time as we've seen other presidents certainly coming, you know, lately with Trump and others. I mean, he just looks like here's just an average Joe, but one that actually kind of rose to the occasion. And that's why I'm such a Truman fan. You know, listening to you tell that story, uh, Jacob, I I couldn't help but think that there's some parallels between uh, 1944, the situation uh, and today. Now, I'm not saying that Joe Biden's not going to survive his term in his office. So please, first of all, he's got to win. All right. The number one. But uh, Joe Biden made this clear that when he was selecting his vice president, he knew that people were going to be thinking about his age and the fact that I think he would be the oldest uh, first term president of all time. And so that people would automatically be looking at the vice president as a potential successor and uh, that he said would govern him uh, his decision making uh and uh i th- i think you're absolutely when you, when you said that thing about truman you're right i don't think fdr ever thought about truman having to step in and yet within a year truman had to step in and become the president with two wars you know the war on two fronts uh, maybe uh, Europe. Now that I think about it, the war in Europe was over. Uh, but uh, so there, there, there are some parallels, don't you think, between then and now, on that on that level? I think there are, and I think that's. Uh, and I think Biden, like you said, was is very aware of that fact, and he really did want to pick somebody as vice president that could step in at a moment's notice and would have the experience and wherewithal to uh, to be president. And I think Kamala clearly has that. So I think it, that I think it was a great pick on his part. Uh, Dan, I, I assume you share Jacob's attitude about uh, Kamala Harris as a great pick for VP? Uh, very much so. On top of that, one of the things that I'd like to also bring out, you know, us, us political know-it-alls, we always have, we're looking for some angle to bring in interesting stories. So 1944 convention is a great way to talk about these things, right? <laughs> but Kamala Harris, um, her sister was actually born in Champaign-Urbana. Her mother was a researcher in Champaign. So you definitely have some connections. I'm actually surprised that we haven't had more journalists exploring Kamala Harris's life in Chicago, her mother's life as a researcher, uh, well, I should say in Illinois, and her mother's life as a researcher here in our state. Yeah, you sent me that uh, uh, that text this morning. And uh, I don't, but did Kamala Harris ever live in Illinois herself? Well, her Go ahead, Jacob. Her sister. Her sister was born here, so you would think that since she was only two years old, it would be pretty improbable for her her mother to be living here as a researcher in the state of Illinois uh, with uh, a child Kamala back in California. So I think it's one of those things that we need a good uh, reporter (laughs) to go out there, Uh, you know, know, to to go and check this out so we can – break it out to the world, you know? We need the Illinois angle. I yeah, the Illinois angle. Oh, my God. We have this clip uh, we play of JB uh, all the time talking about all the great presidents uh, from Illinois. Illinois has launched four presidents. I think it's four. Uh, and so if Kamala Harris is ever uh, president, uh, Dan, we could say that's the fifth, uh, although it's a very tenuous <laughs> connection. 
uh, to put it mildly. All right. We mentioned 1968. Uh, that, of course, was the Democratic Convention right here in Chicago. Mayor Richard J. Daley uh, was presided over it. It was his show from start to finish. And uh, to, it was a very contentious uh, event, to put it mildly. There was a riot a series of riots. Uh, it was police riot. It was called. Uh, police went at uh, anti-war demonstrators. It just if, uh, when you talk about the visions in the Democratic Party, uh, it, they were all on display in 1968, a year that in many ways parallels this year. I can there's so many contrasts uh, that I can recall from 68, and it's a very frightening moment in time. Uh, Dan, you're too young to remember the 68 convention. I don't even think you were born yet, uh, but I know you're a student of history and you've studied it. Uh, so what are your thoughts about the 1968 Democratic Convention and its parallels uh, to today? Well, that's, you know, talking about the parallels, that, that, that's something that would take larger reflection. However, one of the interesting things that I think that you had at that convention is that Richard J. Daly was coming into this convention at his peak and he came out of it never the same mayor, even though he'd be mayor for another eight years afterwards. A person who was well known as the kingmaker. And, you know, I think it's a great cautionary tale and maybe it's a, it's a reminder of how hubris uh, can be your own undoing. Let's take a look at what happened with the Republican uh, convention that Donald J. Trump was trying to force to happen in person at all costs instead of going with the conventional wisdom. And so in that way, you could say it's a cautionary tale. The 1968 convention, you know, let's try to remember up until that point, Chicago for both the Democrats and the Republicans was the go-to place for presidential conventions. And so you had where, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but through the neighborhood of Bridgeport to go through, because these conventions would happen um, at the amphitheater, would actually drive through Bridgeport and drive through the mayor's hometown neighborhood. Why? So that he could accentuate how he was this important national figure. Mm -hmm. uh, after what happened at the convention, um, I don't think that the uh, same feeling uh, about where the mayor was, the mayor Richard J. Daly was at, was ever the same. Jacob, your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I, certainly some of the parallels you could say are the fact that we are now in a very, uh, to some degree, similarly divided uh, time in, with many of the same issues still, you know, racism and, and uh, policing and the like. Uh, so you, that's certainly a parallel with 1968. Um, but I don't think there's going to be too many parallels. I mean, it'd be different if this was a normal. Uh, year we didn't have a pandemic and these conventions were happening in person. But considering there that the conventions these this time around are going to be virtual, I, I don't know how many actual parallels there will be and how many actual protests there'll be in person. But certainly, I think the uh, kind of the protest culture of both '68 and today are are you, I can definitely see a lot of parallels there. Yeah, no. When I when I said there are parallels, uh, you're absolutely correct. I didn't mean there was parallels with the. Uh, the specific conventions because this is a virtual con convention just the issues of the day the tensions of the day uh the uncertainty of our existence right now jacob i mean here i am uh, speaking to you uh over a uh, computer we're not in the studio uh, we haven't been in the studio since march we're in the middle of a pandemic uh and, and in the middle of 
unrest, civil unrest. The country is so divided. That's what I think about uh, the the split. Uh, And um, you're right. At least this current convention will not have to somehow or other uh, heal a divide. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be a projection, don't you think, Jacob, of like an attack on Trump or a theme of democratic unity. But it's not like we're going to try to we have these warring factions inside a hall or just outside a hall. Yeah. No, because the Democrats have come together. I think everyone's pretty well uh, (laughs) coalesced around uh, Biden and getting rid of Trump. So different in that respect. Uh, Dan made it. Go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, plus, given the fact that it's virtual, I don't think you'll have any types that are similar to um, Abby Hoffman or Jerry Rubin trying to go in there and uh, seduce delegates. Uh, can't really do that when you're meeting online, as, as happened with the Yippies in 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, following <laughs> up on what Dan was saying, uh, Richard J. Daly was the king of the 1968 convention, but he fell after that to a certain degree. In 1972, which is my personal favorite convention, even though it was an utter disaster, <laughs> the Democrats, which <laughs> is a cry for help on my part. But uh, uh, that was the convention just four years later, Dan. Again, you're too young to remember this, but uh, <laughs> Richard J. Daly and his contingent was evicted. They were evicted from... Uh, the Democratic Convention. Uh, unthinkable. Yeah. 1968, the man who presided over the Democratic yeah. Convention by 72 was evicted. Dan? You know, in politics, things change quickly. Do you have any memories of that 72 convention, Dan? <laughs> no. Only, only in watching YouTube clips. Why? What about you, Jacob? Anything that you think about the 72 convention, any lessons that it holds for today? Well, I, it certainly was not, as you said, not, not a good convention for Democrats. You had the acceptance speech at, what, 2 in the morning uh, by McGovern. Of course, you also had the choice of uh, Eagleton as vice president, which would uh, last, what, maybe two weeks <laughs> before he had to be replaced on the ticket. So that would not have been an enjoyable time to be in my position right now. I'll just put to put that out there. <laughs> oh my God. You would have hated that. By the way, I t- uh, unbelievable. Uh, there's a TV show. Uh, it's on, uh, I think it's Netflix. I'm uh, utterly obsessed with it. I'm watching it. I'm, uh, I'm just making my way through year one. It's a two. So I think there's been two seasons it's called the politician. I don't know if either one of you have seen this show, but it's the story of an exceedingly ambitious young man who wants to be president of the United States. And in episode one, he's running for president of his school class. Okay, and they treat it like it's a national election. It's a parody of national politics. But there's a lot of issues with his vice president. And I'm laughing at this thing. This thing was made in 2000, I think, 2019. They reflect, they talk back as a cautionary tale. 1972, Jacob Kaplan, when uh, George McGovern, without very little uh, preparation, chose Senator Tom Eagleton as his running mate. What a disaster. Turned out Eagleton. had an electric shock to his brain or something, and they came out and suddenly had to step down. Sergeant Shriver, a Chicago connection, uh, was added to the ticket. A total unmitigated disaster. Can't imagine anything like that happening today, Jacob. Can you? 
No, though of course you can make, draw some parallels if we're talking about vice presidential picks that weren't really vetted to, uh, you know, Sarah Palin, <laughs> for one thing. I mean, what did uh, John McCain famously say right before that announcement? When somebody asked him, a reporter asked him about how are you searching or how are you vetting your vice president? He's basically, it's a Google. <laughs> Didn't work out so well. It's one of my favorite McCain quotes of all time. But yeah, uh, I think that was one of the uh, more disastrous VP picks, but certainly nowhere near the level of uh, – Eagleton, that's for sure. Yeah. I guess what I like 1972 so much, gentlemen, is it's, it was disastrous for the Democrats, but it was so exceedingly entertaining. Uh, and it was when uh, the, there was gavel-to-gavel coverage by the um, the major networks. Obviously, there was no cable TV in 1972. And so it was just on display, the wheeling, the dealing, the brokering, uh, the mistakes, the overstatements by various politicians. I was all caught in, in the McGovern campaign, uh, foolishly thinking that McGovern would win just because every lefty like me was for him. So there's some, again, there's some parallels right there, Jacob. Uh, uh, Democrats moving too far to the left, not realizing that there's a rest of the country to win over. No doubt, but I don't think uh, I don't think choosing Biden is not moving too far to the left. <laughs> that, well, yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned, Jacob, another convention that I'd love you to, to talk a little bit about. Uh, again, you weren't born, but you've studied at 1976 Republican Convention. Why do you like that one so much? Uh, that's just another, I guess, I guess I like conventions that were, again, disasters for the parties that held them, because those are really the ones that are memorable. And 76, of course, is when Gerald Ford is up for election, because he'd never actually been elected, of course. He took over when Nixon had to resign. And uh, he so he was the presumptive nominee. But, of course, there's another uh, guy by the name of, name of Ronald Reagan, who, uh, who of course, challenged him in, in 76. And, uh, again, inter-party challenges to the uh, incumbent president, never a good thing. And that was just a convention. It was in Kansas City where you could just see that all the delegates wanted Reagan. He gave this great speech and people were in tears. And uh, it, it didn't turn out well for Gerald Ford, all things considered, either at the convention or, of course, in the November election that year. So that's just another memorable convention that really, I think, made a difference uh, in, in, in the results, one could argue. Absolutely. There's a, a rule of thumb that says if a incumbent uh, president is seriously challenged uh, in the primary, he's in a lot of trouble. Uh, and that so that Donald Trump doesn't have to worry about that. But uh, uh, Gerald Ford had to worry about that in 1976. Dan, do you have any memories of the 76 convention? You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is that the death now for the progressive Republican movement uh, for people that are younger, it might seem like it's uh, like it's something that doesn't make sense, like it's <laughs> a contrast in terms. But in 1976, you had a strong progressive movement that was in the Republican Party. Let's not forget, Abraham Lincoln was a, was a progressive Republican. And there were many others, whether you're talking about the bull moose, Teddy Roosevelt, right, breaking up the trust. And so I think one of the important things that you see is that kind of like a, almost like a dirge, a funeral, um, where... Many of these fixtures of progressive republicanism, um, you know, would end up being irrelevant uh, just a short time later. Yeah, well, they're definitely irrelevant today. There's no such thing as a progressive Republican right now. Uh, Jacob Kaplan, let's fast forward to the convention you were at, 2016, 2016, Democrat convention. Uh, And again, that one I remember so clearly at the outset. Uh, that was when they dumped the uh, uh, all the emails that they had uh, stolen. The Russians had stolen 
Oh, God, what a disaster to have a convention start with that. What are your members of the 2016 convention? Well, it was in Philadelphia. It was extremely hot. It was like 100 degrees almost each day. I do remember that. I remember the uh, the protests of the uh, Bernie delegates uh, who felt like they were kind of left out of the platform committee. And uh, so I was in the convention hall the first night and they staged some major protests during the uh, you know, during some of the speeches. You didn't quite see it if you're watching it on TV, but I could certainly see it in the hall. Um, but then I just remember by the last day and, uh, you know, when, when Hillary gave her speech and acceptance speech and it seemed like all of that had calmed down, I remember feeling uh, really energized and excited and thinking that uh, we were going to win. So uh, I guess it's a lesson in uh, perception is not always the uh, reality or how things end up uh, just because a party has a great convention, all things considered, doesn't mean they're necessarily going to win. So, Dan, were you, at that, were you at that convention? I was not, but one of the things that that convention definitely um, I'd like to allude to is that um, in general, you know, oftentimes we are hard on our own party because of the fact that we see them, you know, score on themselves, right? Where it's like, oh man, that's a terrible move that's just going to end up hurting us, right? And then the, the, the three of us end up commiserating being like, man, Democrats, we need to do a better job on this or on that. And in distinction to that, going into this convention, um, when you're talking about some of the mistakes and missteps that characterize the 2016 race, in hindsight, we've seen, we've learned them from them. And so, for example, you don't have the similar feeling of folks that were with Bernie of feeling left out of this convention uh, to the extent that you had the last time. You have where um, Bernie and Biden have made it a priority to make sure that Bernie supporters come on board in this campaign. And so I think that's one of the important things to look at when you kind of compare and contrast the 2016 convention and where we're at this time around as it begins. Jacob, do you share those thoughts? I, I totally agree with those thoughts. I, obviously, it's a different situation. We're the party out of power now, or as we were in power in 2016, right after President Obama was, you know, obviously not running again. And and so it's a different, totally different dynamic. But I do think we're a more unified party now when we were, we're all just trying to get Trump out. So it's a, it's a very different dynamic. Well, uh, one thing I will say, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that the party is, in my humble opinion, uh, more unified than it was in 2016, because I think uh, people, pretty much everybody uh, is coming face to face with the reality about how dangerous Donald Trump is. Uh, and that wasn't as real a threat in 2016. But I do believe that the Democrats, how do I put this, uh, have that old Bernie uh, Hillary Clinton divide exists to a certain degree in the Democratic Party. It's been papered over uh, because of the fear of Trump. But it's not like the Trump cult in the Republican Party. Jacob Kaplan, I can't think of any young Republican who defies Donald Trump. So when I, the reason why I'm emphasizing young is that there's a few uh, – Elders like Mitt Romney, who's in his seventies, uh, Kasich, who'll be speaking at the Republic, uh, the Democratic conventions. I think he's in his sixties, but I can't think of any anyone who's roughly the equivalent of AOC in the Republican Party, a young upstart just got elected, who's saying, "No, we do Donald Trump 
uh, does not represent us. My feeling as we head in these two conventions, the Republicans right after, is that the Republican Party has become, I think you said, the cult of Donald Trump. And the Democratic Party right now is coalesced in opposition to that. That's my read of it. What's your take? Uh, I agree. And I, I guess the only young, maybe you could say Justin Amash is one, but of course he left the Republican Party, but he was at least on the younger end of things, the former congressman from Michigan. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and I've heard a lot of, from uh, Stuart Stevens lately. And Stuart Stevens, for those who don't know, was a top Republican strategist and was, was high up on Romney's campaign in 2012 and just, you know, was a hardcore Republican. And now, He's become one of Trump's, uh, you know, largest detractors. And he just wrote a new book about that. And he basically says, like I said, that, that the Republican Party is is a death call. It's literally going to die. I mean, at least he thinks. And I tend to think this will happen, too, as long as we make sure Trump loses. I mean, I think that the Republican Party is on the verge of literally becoming irrelevant because there's nobody who uh, who will who will buck the uh, the Trumpist line. So who is going to be the natural person to take over when the Republicans, knock on wood, lose majorly in 2020. I don't know what it's going to take. Uh, I mean, certainly they'll try to reinvent themselves, but if they continue with this anti-immigrant, you know, uh, anti-everything attitude uh, going forward and try to come back with that, I don't think it's going to work. And the, de- the demographics of the country are changing so dramatically. I mean, what is it that, that if you look at the population of the country under – 30 it's majority minority now or i think it's 25 or 30 so i mean and like 95 or 98 percent of uh, people under 25 don't identify as republicans or some i don't i'm just these aren't the exact statistics but uh similar you know i just heard these statistics and i'm just like wow how is this party gonna you know reinvent itself and survive if these are what, what they're looking at Dan, your thoughts uh so two things come to mind. One is how many folks after Donald Trump hopefully loses will try to go back and do a revisionist history that they were always against Donald Trump because it's one of those things you inevitably have. Once someone is unpopular, right? It's like, oh, you cut themselves yourselves off from them. No, 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 no. I was never with that person, right? So that would be an interesting turn of events to just kind of see some folks that right now are, you know, singing Donald Trump's praises, who in a few years, if the mood of the party is anti-Trump, would do the same. Uh, Additionally, there are some folks that, as Jacob mentioned, have left the Republican Party. So if you have a, um, if you have where these Trumpist elements are purged out, will you have the return of folks like Jacob had mentioned, Stuart Stevens, one of the people that comes to mind is that there's a young uh, former Republican activist who is um, now involved in conservation, and he's actually been trying to lead the folks that have more Republican sympathies in regards to trying to acting on, on climate change, which I think that's very important in trying to bring folks from that side of the aisle in to address this very important issue. Someone like that would be a candidate that if Trumpism were purged from the Republican party to go back to the political party where he had started from before he was alienated because of Trump and his uh, policies. Hmm. Well, I, I, 
I would think conventional wisdom, you know, just or logic, uh, Dan would say that uh, which which you're suggesting would happen. But right now, uh, I'm blanking on the woman's name, Marjorie, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She, I don't know if you guys follow this. She was just victorious in a Republican primary for Congress uh, in Georgia. Oh, yeah, QAnon. QAnon. <laughs> and she's an utter extremist. She goes even beyond yeah. Donald Trump. Donald Trump, instead of instead of expressing concern on the eve of a national election, when you would think the Republican party would be moving a little toward the center uh, to try to pick up swing voters, embraced her. And she had some uh, extremely radical extremist uh, things to say about Muslims, about blacks, uh, about Democrats in general. And she's a QAnon. She believes in all the, the whacked out uh, QAnon uh, conspiracy theories. She was victorious. So, Jacob Kaplan, it seems like the Republican parties are doubling down. Instead of young people coming up the ranks to challenge the view of Donald Trump, they're like embracing beyond Trump. They are. They are. They're just doubling down. They have they have no real ideology except to be the party of Trump and the party of all these crazy conspiracies. They have no I mean, what is even their platform at this point? What is Trump espousing as to what he wants to do with a second term? They're not saying anything. It's just become like I said, the cult of, of Trump, and they're just willing to go down with him and die with him if if necessary, it seems like. It's really bizarre, but that's how they're they're operating. Dan, do you, are you alarmed by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's victory in, in Georgia? Oh, I mean, very much so, but I think that that's one of the reasons why you have so many Republicans who have, have left the Republican Party, because they're just in shock. I mean, 10 years ago, who would ever think John Kasich will be at the Democratic National Convention. Who would think that so many Republican operatives, such as Stuart Stevens or Steve Schmidt um, or uh, the, the folks that started the Lincoln Project, how many people would think that um, they would come in on and try to help us on our side to elect a Democratic president? Um, I think Obviously, we've been in this situation for the past 10 years, so it's been like a slow roll. But if I were to tell Ben Jurowski 10 years ago that that would be the case, I think that you'd think that I was um, either exaggerating or, or was out of my mind uh, <laughs> if I were to predict that turn of events. But that's the way that things have evolved. And so, of course, it's, it's horrible and, and it's shocking. But this is one of the reasons why in 2020, we really need to send a message that this cannot continue. And Democrats are the only one that understand that. Dan, I wouldn't have predicted it. And I will tell you this right now. Uh, I'm not going to pretend. I'm not even going to come close to pretending that I could have possibly predicted where we are. Just when you mentioned the Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project is a consortium of former Republican strategists who decided that Donald Trump uh, is an abomination uh, who must be defeated and that uh, Trumpism must be eradicated from the Republican Party. And so they dedicated themselves to electing not only Joe Biden as president, but uh, giving the Senate back to the Democrats, getting uh, Mitch McConnell out. I could never in a million years, Jacob Kaplan envisioned a group of Republican strategists who had worked for McCain and Romney uh, and Bush and even I think there's some Reagan types in there uniting to elect Democrats. Furthermore, what I 
I find mind boggling is that they're using many of the same tactics that in their commercials against Trump that they mastered uh, against Democrats. So I'm watching the best at the game use those Republican tricks against a Republican. I thrive on it. So I could not have predicted that. Uh, I just don't know if be with our electoral college system, uh, Jacob, uh, if if it's possible you get what I'm saying? It's possible with the Electoral College to defeat Trumpism. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think it's possible to defeat Trump. Defeat Trumpism? I, I don't know. But, I mean, I think it's it's a good thing that we have these, at least we have some Republicans with principles that have realized that the party has left them. And, you know, that, you know, I know a lot of them are older, but, you know, they will hopefully, some of them at least will be the future of reconstructing the party in some form. Uh but, uh, you know, because I don't think America can survive without, I mean, we are a two-party system, so we need two parties that actually try to govern, and we haven't had that for a while now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I, I never could have, you've told me 10 years ago that we've been be in this position where you have these top Republican strategists literally campaigning against their own party. I wouldn't have believed you either. It's nuts. All right, gentlemen, we'll close it down by uh, getting your thoughts uh, as who will sort of be the uh, stars of this convention. Uh, any Anything you're really looking forward to? Uh, we'll start with you, Dan. Uh, any speakers that you're looking forward to in particular? I'm looking forward to the dark horse. It's the people that you can't predict. person that, you know, being Illinois, knew who Barack Obama was but the people that will shine because of this convention. And it'll be much more difficult because it's not in person, uh, you know, with everything going on with COVID, although maybe conversely, more people will tune in and pay attention because they won't be able to go out. Um, but that's what I'm really waiting for. Who is the person that has never looked at in that way to be the next Barack Obama? Yeah, who's the next Obama 04 convention speech, in other words? That is a good question. Uh, I'm, I'm, of course, interested in that as well, but just, uh, you know, who am I really excited about? Of course, Michelle Obama. I mean, I think she always gives a, a great speech. Certainly, uh, uh, President Obama as well. Excited to hear from him. I'm excited to hear uh, AOC's speech, even if it's only 60 seconds long. It's unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> I'd be curious to hear what she's going to say. Uh, I don't know. I'm curious to hear what our own Senator Tammy Duckworth is going to say on Thursday night. Obviously, she didn't get the VP spot, but uh, she still has a major speaking role, so that'll be interesting. Uh, but just in general, I mean, there's so many great names on this uh, lineup, so it's going to be fun to watch. All right. My advice to AOC is talk fast. Man, 60 <laughs> seconds? Come on, Tams. She's a star in the Democratic Party. <laughs> She's 60. better talk fast, AOC. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, uh, you know, she'll have to talk really fast. All right, uh, Jacob Kaplan and Dan Pogoshelsky, thank you very much. Dan, next time I have you on the show, I may do a solo thing with you. I wanted you to take us on that tour for historical geeks of that cemetery that you took uh, Dennis on a tour of where uh, um, Jack Ruby is buried and Mike Royko is buried and the great Shel Silverstein. you got to take us on a, at least a virtual tour of that. <laughs> I'd be happy to, but I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a team player, and especially Jacob here has some amazing places that he knows. Jacob was the one, for example, who was telling me about how on one of his cemetery walks, actually got to see Saul Alinsky. Come on. I'm sure the audience would love to hear about that or some of the other folks that 
the two political know-it-alls all can come up with the surprise, your wonderful listeners. Wait, time out. Olinsky's buried at that same cemetery that different Dennis cemetery. went to? Which one? No, different, different cemetery. Different cemetery. Different but okay. also on the northwest side, what about Jacob, about like um, two miles away? Yeah. Yep. Northwest side, uh, Jewish cemetery. Yep. Who is that? Wait, time out. Where, that's where Saul Linsky's buried in a northwest side Jewish cemetery? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Saul David Alinsky? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the creator of community organizing. He wrote two textbooks on it. And con- uh, ironically enough, after denouncing him all these years, the Republicans actually read the textbooks and have stolen many of his ideas and have used them. Uh, and of course, I'm not giving Saul Alinsky credit for anything. The great Saul David Alinsky. All right. Thank you very much, Jacob. Thank you very much, Dan. <laughs> uh, stay safe and sound. Enjoy your convention. We'll be talking to you soon. All right. Sounds My good. pleasure.